welcome back to Killer Bay's podcast. Hello, everybody. Oh, and I'm Katie. We don't usually do that. I know. I almost just said I'm Katie. We can do that. We can trick people. Yeah, I'm Katie. And I'm Kirby. Do you think people can tell our voices apart? I think they can if they've been listening long enough. That's true. Can't trick them. Can't trick our fans. Well, welcome back this week. We have episode 54. Do you have any updates? No, I think the only updates I have would be what I'm watching on TV since that's all I do. And I did finish that Cecil Hotel documentary thing on Netflix. And you recommend it? Yeah, it was good. Okay, maybe, maybe. I ha- It I was have like 12 TV shows. There's so many. Have you heard of that case of the woman who goes missing in the hotel? And I don't want to give too much away, but. I saw the trailer for it. Like she's in the elevator near the elevator. Yeah. and then Oh, it's the creepiest video I've ever seen when she's in the elevator. Ugh. And it like was haunting me. And then I finished it. And really, it's just sad. But it's good. It like also ties in other things. It's about her, but it also ties in things about the LA area and like downtown LA and the homelessness huge problem that they have um and like it talks a lot about mental illness and there's just like a lot of things wrapped up in it but it's it's good I liked it okay well I will give it a shot for you wow thank you I don't think you ever do though every time I tell you about a show you never watch it so it's fine (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) but it's on record that I said I would give it a shot doesn't yeah, but it. you don't do it. I do it. it. <laughs> you told me to watch Britney Spears, and I did, and it was good. It was good. Oh, that was good. Yeah, I enjoyed that. Free Britney. Why were you up so early this morning? You told me you were up at like 7.30, and usually you're like, I woke up at 1, I stayed in bed. I know. I don't know what's happening. Maybe it's getting brighter out, and I need to shut my blinds or something. Maybe. Tough, Your body is getting ready for that spring feeling, although it's February. Spring forward. Yeah. Okay. Well, I have no updates, and this is a very long episode, so we will just dive in. But we are going to be hopefully maybe visiting a couple places for the next upcoming episodes. So that'll be fun. So stick around for that. I could use a good, like, trip, car trip to somewhere that's outside with no people around. (laughs) Yeah, I think that might be nice. Yeah. All right. So let's dive in. Okay. Charles Stewart and his pregnant wife, Carol DeMady, were shot on October 23, 1989, and Stewart pointed his finger at a black American, inflaming racial tensions in the city and causing national outrage. The story was portrayed as an example of crime running rampant and what could happen to white, affluent people traveling through bad neighborhoods. On Monday, October 23, 1989, police received the following call. Charles Stewart, 29 years old, was a Reading native and general manager of Kakas and Sons First Shop on Newberry Street in Boston, earning more than $100,000 a year. His wife, Carol DeMady, 33 years old, was a tax lawyer at Connors Publishing Company in Newton. She traveled frequently for work, and they were both healthy, young, and affluent who had been married for about four years, and their anniversary was coming up at Christmas. They lived in a comfortable suburb, and their house was a roomy split-level entry slate blue home on Harvest Street in Reading. They had a car phone, which was next level back then, and a swimming pool, and a jacuzzi. The couple really seemed to have it all, and were getting ready 
or were as ready as they could be for a first-time parent, for the arrival of their first child. Carol DeMady and Charles Stewart were just leaving Brigham and Women's Hospital. Carol was seven months pregnant, and the couple had just finished their prenatal examination and birthing class. They planned on naming their baby boy Christopher, because he was due the day after Christmas. They were in their car on Mission Hill when Carol was shot in the head, and Charles was shot on the side. For 13 long minutes, Massachusetts State Police Dispatcher Gary McLaughlin tried to get Stewart to give them a street address or any identifying landmark that would help the officers get to them. Cruisers were sent in every direction trying to find the couple's Toyota Cressida in Boston's neighborhood. The following is an excerpt from the transcript of Stewart's call to the police dispatcher. So I'm the dispatcher and you're Stewart. All right, dispatcher answering. This is 510. My wife's been shot. I've been shot. Where is this, sir? I have no idea. I'm off. I was just coming from Tremont, a Brigham and Women's Hospital. He drove us. He made us go to an abandoned area. Can you see out the windows? Can you tell me where you are? I don't know. I don't see any signs. Oh, God. Okay. Has your wife been shot as well? Yes. In the head. I ducked below down. Okay. How far, how long ago did you leave Brigham and Women's and what direction did you go? Two minutes, three minutes. Oh, man. Stay exactly where you are. Are the people that shot you, are they in the area? No, they took off or they left. Should I drive up to the corner of the street? If you can drive without hurting yourself, yes. If you could, just try and give me a cross street. I'll try to start the car. He took the keys, but I have a spare set. Oh, man, I'm starting the car. Okay, sir. What's your name, sir? Stewart. Chuck Stewart. Oh, man. Okay, Chuck. Help's going to be on the way. Bear with me. Is your wife breathing? She's still gurgling. There's a busy street up ahead. Oh, man. I can't see where I am. Hang in with me, Chuck. Just try to give me any indication of where you might be. A hospital? Do you see a building? Oh, man. I'm going to pass out. You can't blank out on me. I need you, man. Chuck? Chuck? Oh, man. It hurts, and my wife has stopped gurgling. She stopped breathing. All right, Chuck. I'm going to get assistance to you, buddy. Open the door. Talk to someone on the street. I'm going to try to drive straight to the hospital. We got assistance on the way to you. I got to pull over, and then it seems like he's passing out. Where are you shot, Chucky? Chuck, pick up the phone, Chuck. And then there's this dialogue between the dispatcher and another police officer, where I think basically the other officers can hear the sirens going past their car in the background of the phone call, but Chuck's no longer talking on the phone. He's passed out, apparently. So it, go, it just goes on from there. They're, they're trying to get more info from him, find out where he is, but Chuck's just not answering. So then I think finally maybe the officers get there, um, and Chuck said, I'm talking to the state police. My wife and I have been shot right here. There's the Boston police. So I, I think the police have pulled up at this point. When officers finally found Carolyn Stewart's car, it was sitting at the intersection of St. Alphonsus Street and Horridan Way, eight minutes away from Tremont Street. I believe it's Tremont Street, but close enough. But yeah, I mean, when he's on the 911 call, they're like, just where are you? We need to know where you are to get to you. And he's like, Tremont Street. And eight minutes away from a street is fairly significant. Aww. Yeah. Suspicious. Carol was rushed back to the Brigham and Women's Hospital in grave condition. The doctors performed a C-section, and Carol delivered their seven-month-old, Christopher Stewart. 
She was then put on life support. At 3 a.m. on October 24th, Carol was pronounced dead. Stewart was taken to Boston City Hospital, where a surgical team worked for six to 10 hours for intestinal surgery. The next day, the Boston Herald's front page read, quote, a terrible night. Gunman invades car, shoots couple. Police made a statement that was released in the same paper, quote, a pregnant woman and her husband were shot in Mission Hill when a man forced his way into their car and robbed them after they left Brigham and Women's Hospital last night, end quote. The mayor at the time, Mayor Ray Flynn, visited the victim's families and said, quote, this is a terrible, terrible night for us in the city. On October 28th, Carol was buried in Medford, Mass. More than 800 people, including Boston Mayor Ray Flynn, Governor Michael Dukakis, and Cardinal Bernand Law, attended her funeral held at St. James Church in Medford. Carol was the daughter of Giusto and Evelyn DiMatti. Carol's brother, Carl, her older brother, made the funeral, funeral arrangements. In her 1977 high school yearbook, Carol Ann DiMatti wrote her ambitions were to become a teacher, to get married, and to have a happy family. Charles was still at Boston City Hospital, but a eulogy he wrote was read aloud during Carol's service. And this is the eulogy that was read. Good night, sweet wife, my love. God has called you to his hands, not to take you away from me, all the happiness that God has brought you, but to bring you away from the cruelty and violence that fill this world. He said that for us to truly believe, we must know that his will was done and there was some right in this meanest of acts. In our souls, we must forgive this sinner because he would too. My life will be more empty without you as will the lives of your family and friends. You have brought joy and kindness to every life you've touched. Now you sleep away from me. I will never again know the feeling of your hand in mine, but I will always feel you. I miss you and I love you. Your husband, Chuck. The first responders who worked to save his life praised his concern for his wife. However, I when I first read this eulogy, I must say that um, I thought it was very interesting. Um, it's kind of definitely foreshadowing, I would I would say. I mean, it's just the fact that he says that we must forgive the person that did this because God would too. And, you know, there's always a meaning behind what God has planned. So there must be something behind this terrible act. It's like, that's your response to your wife getting killed is like there's a meaning behind it very sus to me folks i don't know about you on november 9th christopher stewart carolyn stewart's baby died of respiratory failure medical officials say the baby was without oxygen for at least a half hour before the delivery and he was just 17 days old at the time Last night, just after nine, the almost lifeless body of Carol Stewart, pregnant with her first child, and her badly wounded husband were found in their car after a desperate search by police. The hellish crime touched off a search like no other in recent memory. Boston police detectives are flooding the streets, squeezing informants, stopping and searching, calling in all IOUs, trying to pry a name, a tip on the gun, or any other piece of evidence that will lead to an arrest. 
The killing of Carol and her baby sent the city into immediate anger. Mayor Flynn vowed to find the shooter and ordered Boston Police Commissioner Francis Roach to send all available officers to Mission Hill. Quote, I demand that the Boston Police Department continue to be extremely aggressive in cracking down on people who are using guns to kill innocent people. It's intolerable. We will use every lawful tool to support our police officers in cracking down on gun-wielding criminals. End quote. From Boston Mayor Ray Flynn. On Wednesday, October 25th, just two days after the shooting had occurred, the front page of Boston Herald read, Hub set to call crime emergency. Outraged officials renewed calls for the death penalty and vowed they were ready to declare a crime emergency in Boston following the brutal robbery. The lawmakers were wasting no time in demanding that Massachusetts reinstate the death penalty. So Massachusetts was one of the first states to carry out the death penalty in colonial times, which they did hanging, which was the primary method of execution. And then in 1900, Massachusetts installed an electric chair to be used in death penalty cases. And electrocution was probably the most common form of execution in the Commonwealth until capital punishment was abolished in 1984. Suffolk District Attorney at the time, Newman Finnegan, said, quote, this is a killing which justifies the ultimate sentence of capital punishment for vicious criminals who think nothing of taking someone else's life, end quote. And Finnegan had long advocated for the death penalty legislation as a deterrent to murder. The newspaper's editorial read, quote, when will it stop? When will public outrage reach such a level that we make it stop? When will we demand that random shootings, the gratuitous violence that we too often accept as just part of urban life, cease? When will we insist that people be able to walk the streets of this city, in any neighborhood in this city, in safety and comfort without fear? Now. The answer is now." End quote. The mayor said, illegal guns and drugs are at the core of the violence that has plagued our inner city community for some time. The city was on fire as the case was dubbed the most frightening crime and least frequent. The media had caused everyone to be plagued by fear that city dwellers were being gunned down at random. While a candlelight vigil was held on Mission Hill in Carroll's honor, there was an overwhelming sense of vengeance sweeping Boston. City Councilor David Scrondra said, quote, You can't help but wonder if what you're watching is a class situation, that it's all right for the poor to put up with an enormous amount of shootings and killings, but presumably, if you are white, upper income, and suburban, maybe that changes things. That's sad, end quote. Where are you right now, sir? Can you indicate to me? No, I don't know. I don't know. We drove, he made us go to an abandoned area. Okay, sir. Can you see out the windows? Can you tell me where you are, please? No. Oh, I don't know. I don't see any signs. Oh, God. Are you near Brigham Women's Hospital? No. We went straight through. Are you in the city of Boston, though? Yes. Can you give me any indication where you might be? Any buildings? Ah, uh, no. Okay. Has your wife been shot as well? Yes. In the head. In the head? Yeah, I, I ducked down. How far, how long ago did you leave bringing a women's center? What direction did oh, you leave? two minutes, three minutes. Three, three minutes from bringing a women's center. Okay, so bear with me now. Stand by. Stay on the phone with me. Investigators had been building a profile of the man they believed to be responsible. Boston Globe wrote, quote, Investigators say they are convinced that the gunman either lives in or routinely commits crime around the Mission Hill housing project. 
Some police sources believe the assailant probably has committed several similar robberies by jumping into stopped cars at intersections, end quote. That's from the Boston Globe on October 25th, 1989. The question that everyone wondered was who? Was it a robbery gone wrong? Why was the robber not just content stealing the couple's money and then letting them go? Why did they have to kill them? The police department begged for citizen cooperation so the crime could be solved. The hunt for the killer, who was described as a six-foot black man, about 30 years old, was set in motion. At least 100 additional officers were assigned to Mission Hill, Roxbury, and Mattapan to search for anyone who fit the vague description, the very vague description. Stewart had given the police little to work off of. He said the attacker was black, he had a raspy voice, he was wearing a black sweatsuit with red stripes, and he had tried to rob the couple in the car, but then said, quote, you're five and oh, and just started firing. Carol had a cellular phone installed in her Toyota Crescenda, um, which was obviously pretty hip at the time. So basically she wanted to be able to stay in contact with her husband because she was pregnant, but she was still traveling often for work. And the police theorized that the assailant may have shot the couple because the phone um, and the assailant may have thought that Carol was a police officer because of the phone. Leslie Harris, a public defender familiar with the case, said, quote, the police kept telling the kids that they'd have to come in and take a ride with them. The way they intimidated these kids into making statements, some heads should roll, end quote. During those first few days, black men were lined up on street corners with their pants pulled down as officers searched their trousers and underwear for any excuse to arrest them. Suspects were strip searched with no pretenses. Community leaders estimated that starting in October of 1989, there were more than 150 stop and frisk searches in the neighborhood each day through November, according to a report in the Washington Post. Stop and frisk is the controversial tactic that has long been used by police departments across the country, bolstered by the 1968 Supreme Court decision that police could stop and frisk a citizen based on reasonable suspicion that a crime had been committed. And that reasonable suspicion is in the eyes of the officer, so it's not heavily regulated and it can be biased. It is still law in Massachusetts today. Leslie Harris, an African-American former judge in Boston's juvenile courts who was a public defender at the time said, quote, the use of stop and search during the manhunt was a humiliation tactic, end quote. And Boston City Councilor Bruce Bowling said, The situation is reminiscent of the Vietnam War. The only question now is what is the body count, end quote, as he described their city being under siege. Suspect one was Alan Swanson, 29 years old. He was a homeless black man who owned a black sweatsuit. He was brought in on a charge of breaking and entering, and he was held for questioning in custody. When he was found not guilty, his charge was reduced to trespassing, and he was charged with armed robbery after his acquittal. His attorney said that they were trying to use Swanson as a convenient scapegoat to appease the public and that the police were making some progress in the Stewart shooting case. Swanson was held for three weeks. Police then found a new suspect, William, a.k.a. Willie Bennett, and let Swanson go. Bennett was around 30 years old, was roughly the same height, and had a raspy voice. He also had a history of committing violent crimes, which included two shootings. On December 28th, Stewart was shown a police lineup, and he reported having a, quote, strong physical reaction when he saw Bennett. In that lineup that Bennett was in, 
The rest of the man standing next to him were all clean-cut Boston police officers. Stewart pointed his finger at the black man arrested by police, but Stewart's brother Matthew later told them that his brother had shot Carol. He said he himself had gone to the scene to help Charles commit what he had been told was going to be, quote, insurance fraud. Stewart's heartbreaking story of a gun-toting thief robbing, terrorizing, shooting him and his wife after a childbirthing class was a lie, a hoax, a scam. Investigators say Charles Stewart took his reasons for killing his wife with him when he jumped off the Mystic Tobin Bridge this morning. Body has positively been identified as that of Charles Stewart. On the last night of his life, with the police looking for him, Stewart checked into the Sheraton Tara Motel in Braintree, Mass. He requested a wake-up call for 4.30 a.m. Then he drove into Boston, stopped his car on the bottom level of the Tobin Bridge, and turned on his hazard lights on the $22,000 Nissan Maxima he had just bought. Leaving a note on the front seat, he got out and propped open the hood. It was 73 days after the shooting had taken place. On Wednesday, January 3rd, 1990, around 7 a.m., Charles M. Stewart jumped about 145 feet from the lower level of the Tobin Bridge in Chelsea before hitting the icy water below. When police arrived, they found his car parked and they found his submerged body in the waters below. Stewart had been painted in the media as the gallant and loving husband of Carol. He was the sole survivor of his wife and child. But as the story unraveled, this seemed to not be the case. By Friday, January 5th, the Boston Globe's front page read, Stewart dies and jump off Tobin Bridge after police are told he killed his wife. The note he left behind said he could not bear the charges against him, but it did not contain any admission of guilt. Matthew Stewart, Charles' 23-year-old brother, had come forward and told police that Charles was the one responsible. Matthew admitted that his brother had planned the robbery, quote-unquote, and executed his wife's murder, then shot himself so he could cover up what the city considered at the time the most heinous crime. Stewart was apparently so saddened that he had shifted from the ultimate victim to the ultimate villain. After his brother went to police, prosecutors had been just hours away from arresting Stewart at the time of his suicide. With this new piece of information, authorities now looked at the case in a new light. It was no longer a black murderer, but a white murderer. And how did Matthew Stewart fit into the picture? What was his involvement? After Matthew made his statement, he was not detained. And just as a reminder, a homeless man, Alan Swanson, was held for three weeks for not even being connected to this case at all. Matthew told police that he knew Charles was up to something, but he didn't know that, some that something was murder. The night of the shooting, the two Stewart brothers had met and Matthew was given a Gucci bag from his brother that contained a gun and jewelry. Matthew took the bag, no questions asked, and he told police that he had helped dispose of the weapon used to murder his sister-in-law, Carol, and the wedding rings. But Matthew's attorney argued that Matthew disposed of the gun and some of Carol's belongings without knowing what it was. Matthew and a friend, John McMahon, drove to Revere and threw the bag over the side of the Dizzy Bridge. Matthew claimed he only came forward when he realized that Charles had blamed it on Bennett and that an innocent man would be charged for the murder. The police said that Charles Stewart had been scheming to kill his wife and enlisted the help of his brother, Matthew. Charles Stewart had attempted the murder earlier after making it look like their Reading home had been burglarized. 
In the following days, news resurfaced on Charles Stewart's shady activities before and after the murder. Stewart had received life insurance payments of about $82,000. He had taken some of that money and bought a new car. Accounts differ on whether there were more life insurance policies or not and whether they were taken out, but just days before he committed suicide, he was supposedly in Peabody buying jewelry for a secret girlfriend, who was believed to be a 22-year-old woman who worked at the fur shop with him. So, allegedly, he bought a $999 pair of diamond solitaire earrings and a $250 14-karat gold brooch. Do people buy brooches these days? I certainly only know brooches as, like, a grandma thing. I used to have some when I was younger. I collected them. I I guess I got them at yard sales. (laughs) Younger (laughs) would collect brooches. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I didn't have very many. I only had like 20. So, okay. <laughs> but I was just wondering, asking for a friend or brooches. <laughs> <You're still> right. <laughs> I mean, they can be. Let's bring them back. Sweet. You still got those 20? <laughs> yes, I do. Okay, perfect. Great. A recorded call to the Revere Fire Department proved at least two other siblings were also in on the details before they became public. Now, news outlets published completely different descriptions of Charles Stewart in the eyes of his neighbor. One neighbor, Maureen, said, quote, I heard about it on TV, and I never would have believed that he would have done such a thing. Carol confided in me a lot of things. We used to go jogging together around the lake, and she never spoke of problems between them, end quote. The Boston Globe ran a quote on January 6th that read, quote, Neighbors and relatives said the four Stewart boys were extremely close growing up, and were among the most popular in the neighborhood, end quote. And the very next day, the same newspaper read, neighbors recalled the Stewarts kissing each other goodbye each morning and hello each night in their Reading driveway. So they are painting a very different picture of Stuart. And you can imagine what they would have printed had it not been Stuart who actually killed his wife. Stuart, who turned 30 in December, seemed to want more. Neighbors also said he talked of opening a restaurant and he had attended a course last spring at the Boston Center for Adult Education called Buying and Operating a Restaurant Successfully. Investigators say that their best guess was that he wanted to collect on the several life insurance policies held by his wife, which may have totaled about $182,000. Charles Stewart was laid to rest as the priest performing the funeral service asked mourners to, quote, forgive whatever wrongs he may have done, which is eerily similar to the statement that Stuart wrote for Carol's funeral. Matthew may have thought he was helping Charles with a jewelry insurance scam when he took the bag from the murder scene, but in that bag was the gun, the couple's wallets, and jewelry. In return for immunity, Matthew testified against his brother. Matthew Stewart was found guilty of obstruction of justice and insurance fraud and faced three to five years in prison. John McMahon, the friend who was with him, was also convicted on obstruction charges. Matthew Stewart apologized to his sister-in-law's family in a tearful courtroom address, saying, quote, I am truly sorry and hope that my actions today will help heal some of the pain of this horrible tragedy, end quote. In September 2011, Matthew Stewart, at 45 years old, was found dead at 1 a.m. It was announced that he died from a drug overdose in a Cambridge homeless shelter. A month later, the FBI began an inquiry into the actions taken by Boston's police in the days following Stewart's 911 call. 
Kavanaugh, a spokesman for the Bureau, said, quote, The FBI inquiry initiated by the United States Attorney Wayne Budd will try to find out if there are grounds for us to start a full-scale investigation, end quote. Mr. Kavanaugh went on to add that the lawyers from the Justice Department's Civil Rights Division might take part and that the inquiry would focus on the allegations that the police threatened witnesses to make a case against the black suspect, William Bennett, 39 years old at the time. After Charles Stewart committed suicide, Jet Magazine called for a boycott of the Boston newspapers, quote, as a way to protest what many in the Black community considered unfair coverage, end quote. The media had so quickly latched onto Stewart's lies, using it as proof of a national crime wave that was sweeping the nation. And I don't think you can talk about this story without talking about racial inequality. I mean, it's right there. The media portrayed Charles Stewart completely different from what they would have portrayed Swanson or Bennett simply because of their skin and socioeconomic standing. Boston Mayor Ray Flynn at the time said, quote, I said everybody owes an apology to the Mission Hill neighborhood, to the black community, and they all owe an apology to the people of the city. We should all stand in line waiting for that apology, end quote. The DeMady family established in Carol Stewart's honor a foundation to provide college scholarships for students from Mission Hill, one of the neighborhoods that was subjected to the police tactics while looking for Stewart's alleged black suspect. Carl DeMady said in a phone interview that for 25 years, the foundation was run by volunteers who financed and guided Mission Hill High School students to attend college, many the first in their families. Quote, we always felt that we were the victims and so was the black community. What better way to reach across it and acknowledge their pain, end quote. Across America, media outlets were backpedaling and writing about how the lie had affected Boston, creating a racial divide. The case had specifically targeted the surrounding black neighborhoods that the police had systematically searched. New York Times wrote, quote, a vicious round of finger pointing began here today as prosecutors, the police, and the news media began tracing the, tri- the trail of faulty assumptions disregarded suspicions, blunders, and perhaps even lies that put the wrong man at the center of one of the most highly publicized and emotionally charged murder cases in the city's history, end quote. The LA Times wrote, quote, was Stewart's suspected plot to kill his wife so extraordinarily cunning that an entire city cannot be faulted for having been duped? Or did Boston also fall victim to its own prejudices and stereotypes when it ignored inconsistencies in Stewart's story and launched a manhunt that tore apart a racially mixed neighborhood, end quote. The following clip is from the Boston Association of Black Journalists and Harvard University School of Law, who sponsored a forum on the media's role in the Charles Stewart case. The discussion was moderated by Charles Ogletree, professor of law at Harvard University School of Law. The panelists were journalists. The forum was designed to help improve coverage of communities of color. Boston Association of Black Journalists and the Harvard University Law School. Participants include news directors from radio and television stations in Boston, as well as representatives from several newspapers in that city. What about your responsibility? Was there any responsibility to say this is a tragic occasion? But this is too much coverage. This is too sensational. We've gone too far. Well, I, I think that you can, you can blame me for making that a big story in Boston. But I think you have to look at the TV networks who aired the 911 footage 
for making it a national story and bringing the national attention onto it. All right, Mr. Hopkins, Channel 4 covered this story basically every, every single day on the 6 o'clock news from the moment it happened. Is that right? No, it's not, not entirely correct. We Did you have six straight days of coverage on the yeah, story? I think about six in which each newscast had a story. Of and these, these were lengthy introductory pieces for the 6 o'clock news, right? Yes. All right. Why? Because of the uh, significance of the story. Uh, the fact that the story itself, I think after uh, the initial story in which we as a television station basically reacted to that story as we would any other story, uh, and the growing um, public interest in that story from all sources, uh, also a sense of growing apprehension, if you will, and paranoia that was growing at the time. Uh, I recall uh, not going anywhere without someone raising the question as to, is it safe to go into the city of Boston? So there was a, a growing uh, sense of apprehension on the part of the public. Well, don't you play into that by giving this story so much coverage? Well, I think the media inevitably, in, in our case, Channel 4, inevitably, inevitably plays into that, yes. Those who led the search through Boston's black neighborhoods and pointed fingers at anyone in a black sweatsuit were now being looked at. They were being scrutinized. Mayor Flynn drove to Mission Hill in Roxbury to apologize to the Bennett family, but he showed up unannounced with no reporters around and said he just wanted to talk to the residents in the area. Bennett had been the prime suspect until Charles Stewart committed suicide. Arthur L. Jones, a spokesperson for Mayor Flynn, said, quote, he told Mrs. Bennett that what had taken place had been very unfortunate. He apologized for the actions that had taken place, end quote. The Bennett family told the mayor that she and her autistic grandchild had been frightened by the police coming into her house with guns drawn and all that, and the mayor apologized for that. Reportedly, the mayor had only stayed a couple of minutes and would not sit down when the Bennett family offered him a seat. Tonight, Bennett, in his first television interview, is speaking out, talking only to our chief investigative reporter, Cheryl Fiendaka. I know I didn't do it. They know I didn't do it. It's just that I had, a, like, a reputation in the project, and everything that happened in Mission, they were considering that it was, it was me. I knew. I knew what was going on. They were going to come to me anyway because of, because of my past. I was a, I was a wild one. Oh, yeah, I was wild. I didn't give a damn. Hear that, hear that man's name. I get chills. Man, I don't, I ain't got nothing to say about that man. He did what he did, and that's it. Now he's gone. I'll see him in hell, if there's a hell. William Willie Bennett, 39 years old, said the accusations ruined his life, and even though he was cleared, it wouldn't erase the humiliation he faced. He issued a statement that said, Although the prosecution in this case cleared me as a suspect, this is not enough. My life and my family's life have been ruined, and no one is willing to take responsibility. End quote. Even a decade later, when the Boston Globe asked for another quote, Bennett said, I don't trust anybody. I barely trust myself. The police falsely pinned a crime on me once, and they can do it again. I have no faith in the law enforcement, and I don't like cops. Nothing has changed. You still have those same racist cops on the police force. And that was from the Boston Globe, April 6, 2000. Suffolk County DA Newman insisted that he never said Bennett was a suspect, but that there were witnesses who 
claimed Bennett had committed the crime. For Boston's black leaders, the backpedaling that the media, the mayor, the, the city officials were doing, it was just too much. They demanded apologies and action to address the blind charge into their neighborhoods. The police had stormed Boston's inner city searching for a man who just wasn't there. He never existed. And in the process, they turned these neighborhoods upside down. A tenant's advocate, Edlina Stalling, said, quote, The message was that people in the projects weren't human that were animals, end quote. Roxbury community activist Siddiqui Cambone told the Boston Globe, quote, race is the primary issue in this situation, as the mayor and the Boston police with racist attitudes reacted emotionally to the report that a white female had been murdered by an African male, end quote. The city was left with extreme racial embarrassment that hadn't been broadcasted like this nationally since 1976. Derek Z. Jackson, a Boston Globe columnist, said, quote, Now, race is out the window. Now there's only the racial embarrassment, the likes of which have not been seen since 1976, when African-American Theodore Landsmark was speared with the American flag by white Americans at Boston City Hall Plaza. Suddenly, a lot of African-Americans are owed an apology, end quote. Knight Rider newspapers wrote, quote, The crime that riveted the nation nearly tore this town apart. The awful ruse has come unraveled. Scarcely a soul in Boston does not feel victimized. Blacks are outraged that Charles Stewart's cynical cover story prompted a police hunt of almost unprecedented intensity and intrusiveness. Whites are pained to find themselves manipulated into apparent racism. And the integrated urban neighborhood where the murder took place feels stigmatized and violated, its name sullied beyond simple repair. Then there are the investigators and journalists so thoroughly taken in, now looking ridiculous. And the politicians who rush to make the wounded husband a hero of their favorite causes. Now they look craven, end quote. Jack Levin, director of Northeastern University's Brudnick Center on Violence, discussed the Stewart case with the Boston Globe in 1999, saying, quote, the Stewart episode was extremely embarrassing for the Boston Police Department and extremely embarrassing for white residents. The police said the citizens who believed the story were disgraced. It completely confirmed the impression, which took hold during busing to de desegregate the schools, that Boston police were racist, that they used excessive force, and that Boston was one of the most racist communities in the United States, end quote. When Carol and her son were killed, people wanted to blame the dangerous black man over Stewart, a white upper middle class man who was supposed to love his wife, because that's how it goes, right? That's the story. But this case didn't fit the public perception, and it was easier to think that a white affluent family had been destroyed by the quote-unquote plagues of the inner city. The case was the subject of multiple books, Murder in Boston and Deadly Greed, the riveting true story of the Stewart murder case by Joe Sharkey, and a movie, Good Night, Sweet Wife, A Murder in Boston. For Boston, this case joins the, the long line of incidents that only showed the city's inadeptness on handling race relations. In 2012, Deadspin ranked the most racist cities in America. Boston came in at number two after Birmingham, Alabama. It was Birmingham, Boston, Phoenix, New York, and then Cincinnati. It's 2021, yet in the summer of 2020, Boston Mayor, current Boston Mayor Marty Walsh, declared racism a public health crisis. We encourage our listeners to do their own research, get out there, read, listen. There's a bunch of material. There's no excuse. 
And you know, this is Black History Month, so we encourage you to honor that. It's an annual celebration of achievements and it's a time to continue the conversation. No matter where you stand or live, where you are in the country or the world, we've got a lot of work to do. But it was a heavy case, but I think it was important. So I'm glad we did it. I am too. And we have a lot of interesting stuff coming up. Well, I shouldn't say a lot. We only have, what is this, 54, 55, 56, 54, 59, 60? Six episodes. <gasps> yeah, so stay tuned. And that'll be kind of the closer for season three. And again, yeah. if you want to contact us, email us at killerbasedpodcast at gmail.com. Or I was going to say text us, but you don't know our <laughs> numbers, so don't text me. Oh my God, um, no, don't. <laughs> Facebook, Instagram, Killer Bays Podcast, Twitter, Killer Bays Pod. As always, I'm Kirby. <laughs> I'm Katie, in case you didn't get it in the beginning. But next time, maybe we'll switch it up and see if anyone realizes it. All right, cool. All right. Bye. See you guys next week. Bye.